0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 34, November 8th through November 14th, 1861. Just as a brief note before we get started, I know we had last month's Patreon content come out, and that was a movie review. We did The Tall Target last month, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and have actually another movie review, just because I think it fits nicely with our schedule here. We did have a rundown of the Mexican-American War, and I think it would be a fitting time to throw in. Uh, a movie, Then there aren't very many movies, really, that uh, capture the Mexican-American War, but uh, One Man's Hero is a movie that fascinated me when I was a little bit younger. Um, I'm not really sure how it's going to hold up, uh, starring Tom Berenger here. So a little bit of a newer movie compared to the ones we've been uh, watching so far. So I'm going to have that review up, hopefully sometime soon. so be on the lookout for that new patreon episode. And if you are not sure about the patreon feed, there is a link here in the description uh, listed in the episode. you can go check it out. Um, you know obviously the support for the show is greatly appreciated. Last week, we talked about Belmont, and the battle of port royal this week we'll stick with the navy for just a bit and rile up our neighbors from across the pond it's actually kind of a similar way america got riled up when britain was messing with our ships which you know turns out into the war of 1812 we can head on over to kentucky and see what's happening there first So remember, there is a real threat of Confederate forces gaining ground in central Kentucky. Felix Zollicoffer would advance and take Barbersville before being repulsed at Camp Wildcat. Simon Bolivar Buckner would gain control of Bowling Green, setting up a headquarters there. So happening simultaneously with those actions will be a campaign to control the Big Sandy River on behalf of the Union. The Big Sandy River actually divides Kentucky from West Virginia today. William Tecumseh Sherman would see the advantage in controlling the river and clearing the region of Confederates. After all, William S. Rosecrans is commanding troops operating in West Virginia at this time. Commanding the federal forces to defend this area would be William Bull Nelson who is an interesting character. Nelson's nickname is derived from his large stature, being very tall and wide. The Kentucky native had a personality to match. Oddly enough, the Union general had started in the Navy, becoming a midshipman as a young man and attending the U.S. Naval Academy. He would serve in the Navy during the war with Mexico. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Nelson's loyalties would be questioned, perhaps leaning towards supporting slavery. There was a connection with Abraham Lincoln, which aided the Kentuckian. He would commit to the cause of the Union and detach from the Navy. In doing so, he would become the only individual on either side to gain the rank of Major General coming from the Navy. Nelson would actually establish Camp Dick Robinson, which we talked about when we were mentoring Barbersville, and it it certainly helped in the recruitment of native Kentuckians to the Union cause. While he will go on to serve in a few campaigns, Notably, Shiloh and Corneth, it would actually be the way in which Nelson died that he may be most remembered for. He had a disagreement with Union General Jefferson C. Davis, and I know that is confusing. Davis would be serving in the Western theaters of the war and afterwards would become the commander of the Department of Alaska. In 1862, Davis would take a leave from the army and return to Indiana. He would come back to the army and report to Nelson, who would give orders for Davis to arm the populace of Louisville. At this time, there is a legitimate threat that the Confederates are going to take that city. They're gaining some momentum in Kentucky. When Davis did not comply within two days, Nelson would call for Davis and reprimand him, saying, I will treat you as you deserve. You have disappointed me. You have been unfaithful to the trust which I reposed in you, and I shall relieve you at once. You are relieved from duty here, and you will proceed to Cincinnati and report to General Wright. Davis would report to Cincinnati before being sent back to Louisville by Horatio Wright, who saw no reason why Davis was sent away. Nelson would run into Davis at a hotel, and the two would have words. Specifically, Nelson would call Davis a puppy and slap Davis when he asked for an apology. General Davis would fetch a pistol and shoot Bull Nelson, as a result, killing the big man. Interestingly enough, Davis would not be court-martialed for this due to the need for experienced Union generals. The matter would actually be deferred to Wright who would return Davis to duty. Nelson would be honored with Camp Nelson, which would become a key supply depot for the Union and a training camp for black troops later in the war. Facing off against Nelson in 1861 would be John Stuart Cerro Gordo Williams. The nickname would come from gallant conduct displayed by the general during the Mexican-American War at Cerro Gordo. Williams had been a senator in Kentucky before the war and had been on the fence between secessionists or unionists. His few hundred men would soon be no match for the over 3,000 that Nelson would be able to field. The campaign was an overwhelming union success. Nelson would capture several towns and 200 Confederates before culminating in the standoff at a place called Ivy Mountain. Confederates under a Captain May would take fortified positions against the advancing Union troops. From cover provided by rocky terrain, they would inflict a few casualties. Nelson would reportedly rally his men, jumping up near the front of the line. He would yell that if they could not hit him, then they could not hit anything, which is particularly relevant considering the general's size. Union troops would take the rebel positions, flanking another attempt to make a stand. Six Federals were killed, with 24 wounded. Confederate casualties were 10 killed, 15 wounded, and 15 captured or missing. Williams was able to continue his retreat after burning a bridge, disappointing the pursuit of Nelson. The Southerners were able to escape into Virginia. Overall, this was a big victory for the Federals. The Northern press would originally report as such, as you recall, there was not a whole lot to be excited about. After our initial wave of enthusiasm, there would be a feeling that a Confederate counterattack even with the smallest of forces, wanted to do all the hard-won gains. Thus, Nelson was unable to press the advantage into Virginia. He had to stay in Kentucky to defend against this supposed Confederate counterattack. It was this uneasy feeling that added to the removal of Sherman from command in Kentucky. The populace is not happy with Sherman. They also have these feelings that this is something that's coming, and uh, they're not satisfied with the lengths that Sherman is taking to defend against such, so uh, he is called for removal, and this is where Sherman sort of has his breakdown, right, but it is sort of a mix of the public and the press not approving of Sherman uh, versus uh, his his own, you know, mental well-being, so It's a little bit of a combination between the two. Let's talk about probably the most famous international incident during the time of the Civil War. On November 8, 1861, the British mail packet Trent was seized by the USS San Jacinto in the Caribbean. Captain Charles Wilkes, who I have seen in various sources, was not a very likable character especially by his fellow Navy peers, would command U.S. sailors to board the vessel with weapons drawn. Wilkes was actually known as a harsh disciplinarian. Before the war, he had led expeditions to explore the North Pole and the Pacific. Wilkes was actually court-martialed for his treatment of subordinate officers upon a return to America. When war broke out, He was given command and sent to search for the raider CSS Sumter. Not finding that ship, he turned to what in his mind was a good prize in Confederate representatives on the Trent. Now why would he have done that? Well, Wilkes had come into possession of a notice that two Confederate diplomats would be leaving Cuba on their way to Europe. John Slidell and James Mason are both taken into custody. Slidell, you have already been introduced to. Remember, he was in Mexico trying to negotiate the purchase of California, among other territories. Based off the success of that venture, one wonders why maybe he was going to seek help from European nations. James Mason was a descendant of George Mason and a senator from Virginia. He was also a strong advocate for slavery. Now, the reasons for their journey across the Atlantic Ocean, I think we have sort of covered why they would be going there. Recognition from England and France were on the top of the list. In addition, the purchase of ironclad vessels and or additional supplies would be secondary. Needless to say, their successful mission could be bad on a variety of levels. So Wilkes, having known these two were aboard the vessel, would seek to put an end to it. Mason and Slidell would be transferred to the San Jacinto and travel back to the United States before being taken to Boston for confinement. The complexities of naval practices in the 1800s, I think, are perhaps lost on us these days. Wilkes actually acted in a regular manner. He should have seized the Trent and brought the ship in for a prize court. This, oddly enough, would have been an acceptable action in the mind of the British government. Because of the smaller-sized crew on the San Jacinto, and the fact that Wilkes did not want to impede the journey for the other passengers aboard the Trent, he took the prisoners and let the Trent continue. This seems to make sense, probably, in our modern mind, but remember there was an issue with that in the early 1800s. Brandon called for blood and mentioned this was just another bullet on a long list of provocations America threw their way. In their response, they would say, The United States man of war falling in with the British mail steamer beyond the territorial limits of the United Kingdom might cause her to bring to might board her, examine her papers, open the general mailbags, and examine the contents thereof without however, opening any mailbag or packet addressed to any officer or department of Her Majesty's Government, the United States ship of war may put a prize crew on board the West India Steamer and carry her off to a port of the United States for adjudication by a prize court there, but she would have no right to move Messrs. Mason and Slidell and carry them off as prisoners, leaving the ship to pursue her voyage. Lord Lyons, the minister of Britain to the United States, would write, I am so concerned that unless we give our friends here a good lesson this time, we shall have the same trouble with them again very soon. Surrender or war will have a very good effect on them. During the war, Lord Lyons would be an advocate for non-intervention. He saw the cause of the south as one that would ultimately be lost but could also foresee the union victory coming at the price of disrupting the country he would actually be very valuable in diffusing the situation that resulted due to the trent affair britain would move military personnel to canada in preparation for potential military operations against america There were even plans being drawn up for potential invasions of American territory. Joint operations with the Confederates to take Washington were not off the table, although they were deeply conceptual. Reaction in the United States was mixed. Even Gideon Wells was back and forth with his response, praising Wilkes while at the same time mentioning that it could be damaging to international relations. So talk about a mixed message there. Wilkes eventually would have a feud with Gideon Wells later in the war due to what the naval officer thought was time past due for promotion. As we have highlighted, things were not going well on the battlefield yet. Capturing these traitors seemed to many in the North to be a victory. Some would point to the increase in building of the military as proof that America would be able to go toe to toe with the empire. But there were some who saw this as a problem. It Seemed that the federal government already had their hands full with a war with the Confederacy. So an additional war with Great Britain could spell disaster. Additionally, there was a financial incentive to keeping Europe happy. Charles Sumner, who you remember had taken a caning at the hands of Preston Brooks, would address the Senate to denounce the actions of Wilkes. He was part of the Foreign Relations Board and had many ties to England, all of whom were sending him warnings that America's actions were being seen negatively. He would beg Lincoln to have a diplomatic solution. So how do you solve this issue? Well, Secretary of State William Stewart and President Lincoln would have to give in at least a little bit to Britain. This was particularly ironic considering Stewart's big plan to prevent the Civil War was why not go to war with Britain? And yes, as perhaps I've already mentioned, that is exactly what his big unifying plan was. That America loves a good war, so why don't we go to war with Great Britain? Why don't we throw France in there as well? And that's going to sort of galvanize the country uh, against these foreign enemies. But obviously, that didn't happen. That's something that William Seward might have put on the table had he been the Republican nominee for president, but he was not, as we know, and Lincoln uh, is, is probably not going to be jumping in to to that boat. France also announced that if the English were to go to war, then they would fall suit. So two superpowers and the Confederate states against the federal government. Those seem like tall odds. Remember, Napoleon III was leaning toward throwing in his lot with the South, but was afraid to do it alone. But what did Britain want? Essentially, they were pretty easy. Apologize. Lincoln and Seward would draw up a disavowing of the actions of Wilkes, and the Confederate agents were released. This would satisfy Britain. Tensions, though, would be high, and as mentioned, this is probably the closest Europe will come to actually throwing its hat into the ring. Lincoln's response, combined with key battlefield victory in 1862, would turn the tide. As I mentioned, and as I mentioned frequently, We are not quite there yet. We can take a pause there. Today, we checked out the situation in Kentucky. The Trent affair is going to leave an air of tension for quite some time moving forward. So that is something we should not forget. Next week, we will head out to Oklahoma to see what is happening there. I think it would be also a good time to look at the wars with the Native peoples prior to the Civil War. I'll probably keep the Seminole War for a later date. In fact, I have that slated uh, down the road here, but at least I wanted to see the experience that some of the U.S. troops should be seeing on the frontier. We've mentioned already that the Mexican-American War, but we should also mention that some of these men are having experiences right up to the outbreak of war, so that would be a good time to throw that in. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, feedback is also welcome. Questions, comments, and concerns, the email is cwweeklypod.com at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.